guys, thank you so much for clicking on this video and tuning in to another episode. I'm your host, CJ Swan, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with a Toronto-based music writer and food writer, as well as an artist manager. Welcome to the show, Claudia McNilly. Thank you so much for having me. No problem, Claudia. So to start things off, I wanted to dive into a bit about where your passion for writing comes from. Was sitting, was writing something you naturally were interested in, or is it something that you found a love for later in life? Um, great question. I'm like trying to ask myself the same thing. <laughs> I think when I was a kid, like before Instagram, before social media really popped off, I always had journals. I was like, you know, the crazy like lo like loner kid when I was like eight years old, just like writing in my journal yeah. um, every time I, whenever I was at home alone and. I was an only child, so I feel like I had a lot of time to myself growing up. So as early as I can remember, I was always like writing in journals, just like what happened or writing poetry or just, I don't know. I read a lot too, so I think getting lost in like certain books influenced me to want to write more too, because to me it was just like kind of the only form of entertainment I knew for a long time of like writing and, and reading. Yeah. And it was never on like a nerdy thing. It was never, I never considered writing or reading to be like, I don't know, that I was doing homework or that I was like right. being nerdy or all those associations. <laughs> it was just like literally fun for me. Like I loved reading like Confessions of a Shopaholic or I remember like The Amazing Days of Abby Hayes or like these books I remember those. Or, or like a series of unfortunate <laughs> events and that stuff. Um, and I just loved it. So then somewhere between the lines, I guess, of like just reading like crazy and, and journaling, I started realizing that I actually enjoyed it. And then I realized like as you get older and as you have to start writing essays for school and all of that stuff that um, I was decent at it. Like I always did well in English and was in like AP English and got good marks on my essays and stuff. So I guess it just like by default became yeah. what I started doing. <laughs> it grew on you. I guess being an only child, like you enjoyed reading and it was kind of your way of interacting with someone. Totally. Since you didn't have anyone. <laughs> For sure. I don't mean to like get so deep <laughs> right away. But um, it was definitely, it's like when I think of weekends growing up, I literally just remember reading and then like journaling and like Writing making up journal. stories. Um, yeah, and like I was always really bad at like math or history or dates with <laughs> names. Like I've never been good at any of that stuff. So. Literally in my life, it's always been like writing and words and sentences and like making up fake shit, like stories <laughs> and stuff that I've been really good at and everything else. Like, like I failed math eight. Like I literally <laughs> failed when I was 12. Yeah, I've, I've never been good at math either. Yeah, not for lack of trying. Like, I don't think I was the best student, but I definitely, like I went to class and like I still failed. So yeah. it was like a disconnect where I was really good at this thing and really shit at like almost everything else. Do you still have any of your journals that you used to write in when you were a child? I think my mom definitely still has some at her place and I, she's probably read them by now, which like to 13 year old me is just the most horrifying thing ever. <laughs> um, I definitely have some and like, I still, when I go to write about a restaurant or write about an artist, I still like take a journal with me yeah. and like write everything in there. And in my room right now, I have like a stack of just journals from the last 10 years. It's different now because I don't go home and like 
right? Like, this is what happened yeah. today. It's just like notes about, you know, for different pieces and stuff. But I try to keep that stuff because I feel like, I don't know. I don't know if it's important, but it's nice to have something, something yeah. that's, yeah, sentimental, I guess. So in the early stages of your development, how did you develop your skills as a writer? Was there anything in particular that you did to hone your craft? Um, to hone it? No, it's actually interesting because I remember when I first started at school, when I first started at U of T, like my first year, I had to declare a major, so I picked English. And not really knowing what I was getting into, but just knowing that, like, again, this was the one thing that I've always been decent at and everything else, not so much. And I remember on all the essays I got back at first, I got, like, really bad marks. I got, like, C minuses, like, really bad. And I remember all the red pen on everything. And I was just, like, I went from getting, like, A's in AP English to, like, a C minus. And yeah. I was, like, what the fuck? Like, am I bad at this? <laughs> like, do I, I, and I just didn't know how to write an essay in a university format, but yeah. as time went on, I, I guess I got better. I never really got good marks at U of T though, so I don't know how I honed my craft. I think like I've always had people from a very early age supporting my writing from some extent, whether it was a teacher or whether it was like this woman, shout out Sabrina Mado, who I work with at the National Post now, but she was the first person who ever hired me like as a professional writer yeah. um, at this blog called the Toronto Standard, and she just always believed in me. so. It was weird because I've always like had moments where I've done really bad writing or it's like gotten bad marks or I've questioned it but then I've also had these voices of like keep going this is good and like a pretty good reception to my work so I don't yeah. I don't I feel like I could still hone my skills like, I don't think I ever really did I, I never had a moment where I like took you know a creative writing workshop or anything like that okay so you are based in Toronto, but I've noticed that you travel quite a lot for work. So have you ever thought about moving abroad or do you love working in Toronto that you just want to stay? Stay here? Um, no, I definitely, I, I wish that I could stay in Toronto more and have the same amount of stuff happen for me professionally. Oh. But I feel like with what I'm doing and what I'm trying to achieve, Every time I leave Toronto for any significant amount of time, it usually ends up benefiting me, um, like whether it's in New York or LA or wherever. So I'm going to be spending more time in both of those cities this mm -hmm. year. And in my mind, I've always wanted to live in New York. Like, I think if I was American and I could just move there without like a work visa and without figuring all of that stuff yeah. out and stay, I would have done that by now. Um, I was living there last year, but then I had to come back because of visa stuff. So in the back of my mind, like, I always want to go to New York yeah. permanently. It's just, I think it's a great place. But I don't know, Toronto is, it's an amazing city to get work done and mm -hmm. you can be very productive here and there's a lot of resources and I think it's benefited me a lot like if I wasn't here, if I had you know started my career in New York or started in LA, I don't know if the same opportunities would have been given to me. Like when I was 23, I got a column in the National Post. Like that's, cra that's amazing, that's crazy. Amazing for and I think that's just because like there weren't as, there wasn't as much competition at the time in Toronto mm -hmm. or like there are certain things that can happen for you here that are really great but then I think to reach like the next level of success you often need to leave and, yeah. and go elsewhere mm -hmm. but like so I don't want to shit talk Toronto too much because it's great but I think it's good to balance out staying and, yeah, and, and you leaving. Yeah feel like you could possibly get more opportunity if you were in LA or, or New York. Yeah, I mean, there's just more opportunity there. 
there's also more competition, I guess, because there's so many more people like Definitely. basically trying to do the same thing that you're trying to do. But in terms of, I'm really just thinking from a music perspective. Yeah. With writing, we're so lucky now because you can be anywhere in the world writing for whatever publication you want. Like you can email whatever editor; it doesn't really matter where you are. But in terms of the music stuff, I mean, all the labels are down there. Like yeah. the radio stations have way more power there. It's it's just a different game. So I think you definitely like if you're an artist, if you're a manager, if you do anything in music, usually you have to leave Toronto at some point to really like yeah. break through. So you've had the opportunity to write and or be featured in Now Magazine, Vogue, New York Magazine, Vice, and many more. Those are some really big accomplishments. When you first started out as a writer and manager, did you envision yourself reaching this level of success? Or is it something that you still can't believe to this day? This level of success. That's so nice when you say it that way. <laughs> um, no, it's interesting because a lot of those bylines, like I wrote for Vogue for a couple of years and that was great. But like with New York Magazine and like Vice and Teen Vogue or whatever else you mentioned, <laughs> I'm so lucky to have had those bylines. But like a lot of those happened so long ago that like mentally now I'm, I don't even know if that work like stands up to the work that I do today. No, like yeah. the place I write for now, I don't know, it's like Double XL, Now Magazine, National Post. And when you say Now Magazine or, yeah, really when you say Now Magazine, it doesn't really sound the same as like, Vogue or whatever. Yeah. But I think, and this is not a criticism of like your question um, <laughs> or anything like that, but I think, what am I trying to say? The way that we judge work now, like we're so quick to look at a byline or like mm -hmm. a headline versus like actually looking at the, the work, work, like reading yeah. the article and like, is this actually good or is it just like published for a New York magazine type of thing? Yeah. Um, like more does the title catch your attention? Yeah. Yeah. So I think. The more, my more recent work, even if the bylines aren't, some of them don't sound as fancy, I think like to me it's a bigger accomplishment because some of those stories I think are like better and juicier than like, you know, the thing I wrote for New York Magazine in like 2014. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. But that stuff still, like people, people still refer to me as like rights for Vogue or whatever just because I guess that sounds like sparkly. Yeah, um, it's still part of your resume. For sure, for <laughs> sure. Um, but yeah, I think we're very quick to like, judge the byline versus judging the work yeah. sometimes. So it's interesting. So graduating from U of T and now having your work published in various newspapers and magazines like those that I just mentioned, mm -hmm. do you feel that you've just reached the tip of the iceberg in terms of what you're capable of achieving? I hope so. Um, yeah, I mean, I hope so. I know that, I guess with writing, like. I have connections at those publications now, so if I wanted to yeah. write for them again, it's more realistic now because I've done it and, and I know people there, but I think you always have to be like reaching for the next thing. Like in my mind, okay. I mean, I'm doing this music stuff, but like I also have a literary agent. Like I want to write a, I have been working on it, but like I want to write a book. Like I want to write something that's like more permanent. I want to do a lot of other stuff. So I hope I didn't peak in my like early <laughs> 20s writing for these places, but I definitely am proud of it. And it also opened a lot of doors for other stuff. So it's, yeah. If you don't mind telling us, what are you um, thinking about writing your book about? Um, so I, I kind of started it last summer, actually. It's basically a look at like the underground 
I don't even want to. I don't know. I don't know if I should say it because I feel like. Yeah, you don't want to expose. Too I'm not much. even. It's not even about exposing, but I feel like when I say, it, people are just gonna roll their eyes, which is fine. Um, <laughs> but it's about kind of like the underground hip hop scenes in Toronto and New York. Ooh. Basically, like this behind the scenes look of like an artist and a manager and like their whole team and all the stuff that that goes on. Because I feel like there's a lot of stories that aren't told. Um, just that aren't told that people don't know about. Like yeah. when it comes to an artist what you see from an artist in an interview is literally like the tip of the iceberg versus like the whole team behind them, like everything that's happening, it's usually a very well-oiled machine. So I think it would be really interesting to showcase more of that um, without putting anyone on blast, like yeah. it's fiction. I just think like that's what I would want to read more of because just kind of looking at like how an artist is even made, like often when you know you see these viral moments from artists that really break through. There's a lot that comes before that for sure that and there's a lot of people see. there who are like brainstorming what you know the catchphrase is or or what like the song is or whatever yeah. usually these things come from like literally 30 people sitting in like a boardroom <laughs> brainstorming like how are we going to break this artist yeah. and um and it works and it's it's just more than like you know this overnight success thing so i think it would be interesting to like look at that a little bit more yeah so the book is going to be coming from your perspective well, it's fiction, um, and I literally like haven't worked on it in months because I've been avoiding it. But <laughs> it is from like a perspective of like a woman in the mm -hmm. industry type of thing because I feel like it would be it'd be a reach to do to do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, but it's fiction. Like it's not my perspective. It's right. no one that I know. It's very. It's I'm joking, Broad. kind of. But it's yeah. It's um, kind of pulling pieces of my life together to format like you know something that I think would be interesting to other people okay well we'll be looking forward to that literally <laughs> like it's not I'm I I shouldn't even be talking about it but thank you you have a weekly column in the National Post called dinner deconstructed can you tell us a little bit about what you talk about in this column and how the column itself came to be um yeah so how did it come to be I was lucky, I've been doing it for a while now. I started it in 2016, and the way it happened was I had been living in New York for the summer. I feel like I go to New York a lot in the summers because it's just like, awesome. I can, <laughs> and that was the first summer that I, that I had lived down there. And this was four years ago, I was so broke. Like I shouldn't have even been in New York. I literally had like no job, no money. I was doing like sponsored content galleries for the Food Network, that was like my main income. This was like after the, like Vogue and the New York Times and all yeah. that, or the whatever, everywhere that I had written for. But all that stuff, like, it's a nice fancy byline. It gives you some access, but like, it's not a, it's not a stable job, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I just moved down to New York, like trying to build connections, writing these sponsored galleries for the Food Network, like the most depressing, mundane <laughs> shit you've ever, like if you, if you look at the Food Network now and search my name, you'll see it. It's like, I remember one, it was like 24 orange foods to like celebrate Prince Harry's <laughs> arrival in Canada or some shit. They actually, yeah, I, I, yeah, I feel like I maybe even shouldn't, shouldn't even be putting the Food Network on blast like this, even though they did, whoever was running the galleries then did kind of fire me. Um, but anyways, so I was doing that. It was very depressing. I had no money. And then I had to come back to Toronto because I can, you can only stay in New York or America for so yeah. long. And I had just moved in with my new roommate. I like didn't know what I was doing. I was like, I guess I'll still do the food stuff because like that's all I know and that's what people know me for. But like yeah. I had no stable nothing. I was like kind of looking for jobs, but not really. And then 
my friend had been, my friend who writes for the National Post was working on a story about freelancers, like freelance writers or publicists or whatever, yeah. and she asked to interview me. And for the story, I had to come into the National Post office to like get my photo taken. And then I guess the editor who was editing the story realized that like I was a food writer in Toronto and he had been looking for a food writer in Toronto. Yeah. So then he called me, he was like, hey, like, can you come in for a meeting, whatever. And I thought it was about the freelancer story that my friend had written, that like maybe they needed to fact check something or something yeah. like that. So I came in, I was just like, not thinking anything of it. <laughs> and he was just like, so we're looking for someone to fill this new position for this new column that we're starting. Like, this is what it is. We can like take it slow, like file one, see how you like it. Um, and like, we'll see if it works. Yeah. And initially it was just in Toronto. So I would go to a different restaurant in the city every week and do a little write up. And even though the National Post is printed nationally like across Canada yeah. my column was like so small time that they only printed it in Toronto but I was still like so excited because I was like I still got this yeah, you know exposure in Toronto whatever and then also like beggars can't be choosers so it wasn't even a question of like oh do I want to do this whatever it, I was just so happy that they had asked me and then it worked out and now it's national and I cover a restaurant across Canada and I've been doing it for the last four years and then it turned into two columns a week and like it kind of snowballed from there but it was like very, it was interesting the way it happened because I was just so happy for the opportunity yeah. and yeah. So <laughs> when you're looking for restaurants to feature in your column, do you have a certain guideline or criteria that you look for when you're looking for s a new restaurant to put in the column? Yeah, I mean, I try to do a mix of high and low restaurants. I never want to be the food writer who's like, I only write about like the five <laughs> star, end, yeah. like $300 a person meals because like that's not what I eat most of the time <laughs> ever. Um, and I think that's why the column has stuck around for so long and like why people like it because one week you'll have like a $5 plate of dumplings and then the next week you'll have like a $500 sushi thing in it. Yeah. And it kind of like does showcases both. So it's not, I never look for anything specific. I just try to, I mean, I like restaurants that feel like they have some kind of soul or character behind them. Yeah. I don't like it when you go to a place and, you know, it's this big PR orchestrated thing and it kind of just big restaurants that are too big that have a lot of money behind them already, that have big PR teams, have everything they need to be successful already. Yeah. I try not to showcase those as much because I, I feel like I have this platform, so I might as well, like, you know, showcase other people who are maybe smaller and, and doing interesting things yeah. too, who don't have like PR teams and stuff. And I'll, I'll do both. Like I'm not saying that I'll never write about a big restaurant, but I definitely try to like be mindful of also including the smaller ones and like mixing it up with high and low stuff. I think that's smart because the bigger restaurants, they already have the exposure that mm -hmm. they need really. But I mean, it would be great to be featured in it, but mm -hmm. the, I think it will be better and more influential for the smaller. For sure. For places. sure. Yeah, I always, I don't know, it's like, everyone's usually pretty grateful to be featured, but it feels good when you like find somewhere that maybe wasn't doing so well and you write a story about it. And not that my stories like can flip a restaurant's business overnight, but like yeah. it adds to it and, it and it helps. And like I've walked into places where they have the dinner deconstructed from like two years ago printed on the wall and it's like a little shop and I'm like, <laughs> this is actually cool. Like, yeah, so it, it feels good. So when did you realize that you had a unique passion for food and wanted to pursue a career within the industry? Um, 
Good question. Again, I'm like, <laughs> when was it? Uh, I've always loved food. I think it's just like one of the most important. It's always been one of the most important things to me because mm -hmm. I feel like if you, I mean, I'm drinking fa Fanta, so I probably shouldn't be talking. It's, it's great though. Pineapple Fanta is the best. Um, but for the most part, like if you're not, if you're eating bad food, you don't feel good. Yeah. And like, yeah, I don't know. I guess when I was growing up, it probably started, my mom is Polish and we used to spend every summer in Poland. My mom's from like this small country town in Poland. It's like a population of like 200 people type of thing. And so that's where she grew up and we would spend every summer there. And like at the time, they literally didn't have like pl like proper plumbing, like nothing was there like yeah. when we would spend the summers there. Um, and so my grandma had a farm where she raised like her own pigs, her own chickens, like grew her own vegetables, did everything. And since I was spending the summer there and like there was no internet, there was like literally fucking nothing to do, I would just like help her on the farm. And I remember like we would like pick vegetables, I would always pick eggs every morning and she would also make me like help her kill the chickens and pigs and stuff, yeah. which sounds like really crazy to people <laughs> in probably North America who haven't done that. But to me it was horrifying at first, like when you have to literally like grab a chicken like by its legs and like cut the head off, like that's how you kill a chicken. Yeah. It was like, I literally became a vegetarian when I was a kid for a while because I was just like so traumatized by like Bapcha doing this. Um, but it also gave me like a really good awareness about food, I think, mm -hmm. and like just understanding where your food comes from. And I was like seven or eight years old. This was way before the farm to table movement or Whole yeah. Foods or any of that stuff. I just like began to understand from a very early age, like the importance of knowing where your food comes from and like the difference that it makes and that I don't know all like how yeah I, I don't even know I don't even know exactly what it did but I know that my obsession with food started there probably and yeah. it only like grew from there um and yeah I guess realizing that I could write about it and make a career out of it didn't come till much later on um it was actually a friend who told me I remember we were all camping and it was like my responsibility to cook for everyone and like do all the food stuff because yeah. I had just I always like cooked a lot and like was big into food before I was writing about it and this was actually right after um sorry I feel like the story is all over the place but this was right after I had been fired from my first job out of university I was a studio manager at this recording studio and I was very excited to get the job because it was like my first nine to five job whatever yeah. Um, and it didn't turn out to be so great and I got fired and I didn't know what I was doing after I was like 23 um, This is right before all the byline stuff started happening and I was camping with my friends We were just like taking a break not knowing like I didn't know what I was doing with my life I was just like <laughs> camping and I was like I think I was just complaining about like not knowing what to write about or not knowing if I should get a job Whatever and my friend was like you need to write about food like are you dumb like literally how <laughs> why haven't you started doing this yet? Yeah, and so I remember that week when we got back home I just started like pitching to places that I had contacts at and I had been doing some writing in the past Just not about food specifically and then within like a matter of months everything started clicking for me like yeah. that's when I mean like Yeah, that's when I wrote this big article for Vice and then the Washington Post picked it up and that's when I started writing for New York Magazine and Vogue and all of that stuff. So yeah. I was like, everything clicked once I started doing more food stuff. Like it just seemed to make sense and people seemed to appreciate my opinions about it. Yeah. So I just kept going. So that <laughs> one friend kind of really like sprouted your whole <laughs> for sure career by telling you to like you should do this you know for sure I don't know what I would have done otherwise because I th I think 
and this is in any situation, not just me, but like when you're outside of a situation, you can see something so much clearer. Like you, I don't like I can see yeah. you know what my friend is doing, and I can think like, oh, they should be doing this, and they would be so much more successful. But when you're that person in the moment, you can't really like see things as clearly for yeah. yourself. Sometimes you, I think people so. tend to be small-minded, like thinking about it too much for sure and also like when i was growing up i was never told you could be a food writer like that's not a job that yeah <laughs> my parents didn't even like we never had newspapers at the house like it wasn't yeah like my my mom like i mean she speaks english but like she speaks polish like we spoke it, food writing is not something that like was ever a conversation like yeah. it was not a job that existed in my mind um so definitely like Thinking small is a problem, and I think, depending on where you come from, maybe if you're raised in a certain way where, like, you can do anything, and you can be a professor, or you can be, like, a journalist, whatever, then that's amazing, but for everyone else, you have to be really mindful of, like, make sure you're thinking big enough for yourself, Yeah. you know? So, yeah, but food writing, like, it's not a real, I still don't think it's a real job. <laughs> like, I'm still so lucky I get to do it. It's like, no one should be paid to give your opinion on a sandwich like it's <laughs> everyone has an opinion <laughs> but some people really appreciate those like I don't know I guess people would get a thrill from reading what someone else their opinion on a food or even the person who cooked that meal they would like to see what you think about it you know for so. sure, a thrill is the right way to put it because I get a lot of hate mail about <laughs> like like I'll literally write the dumbest thing about like a sandwich and like 15 people will email me being like, you're so dumb, like how could you think this, blah, blah, blah. And I think that's also the readership of like the National Post and the other places that I write for because I've spoken to other writers, they don't get this. But um, it definitely is an emotional subject. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, everyone, like everyone has to eat, everyone has an opinion about food. So I yeah. feel like it can trigger like really strong emotions in people. It's like avocado, you either love it or mm -hmm. you hate it. <laughs> Fact, or you're like, <laughs> over it but no avocado is great so <laughs> personally I'm a food lover like I love to eat but I don't like to try new things I, I know that is one thing about me for sure would you say that you're daring or not picky when it comes to food um so I know certain food writers and I I know how they eat because I'll travel with them like we'll go on press trips to Colombia or Japan or whatever and there's people who are way more daring than me like I remember being in this small village in Japan and they were serving us a meal of um, blowfish, like pufferfish, which is toxic if it's not prepared correctly. Yes. And I'm cool that. to eat like a couple bites of that. Like I'll try it. I'll tell you what it tastes like. I'll eat it. But this meal was literally like six courses of blowfish prepared <laughs> in different ways. And it was like stacks of it. And we're also like in the middle of fucking nowhere in Japan. Like if something happens, there's nothing around. Yeah. Like no one's gonna <laughs> save you. I don't have travel insurance. <laughs> like you're kind of, you're fucked. So in situations like that, I don't do anything that will make me uncomfortable. Like I'll try it, but I mm -hmm. don't have a fear of being rude anymore. Like I used to, I don't feel like I need to finish anything. Um, mm -hmm. and I don't feel like I need to prove anything to anyone either. I know people who will like, people at that dinner who ate every piece of fish on their plate. <laughs> And even though they, they, you know, prepared it correctly and it wasn't toxic, like, I can't imagine, like, it made them feel good. Like, it didn't taste good. Yeah. At least in my opinion. Like, I don't need to eat all of that. And I feel like, I don't know. I'm not as daring as, as certain people. I'll try anything, though. But I think 
if you're writing about food and you want to come by an opinion that's honest, you need to like just be a regular person. Like I always mm -hmm. try to go to a restaurant being hungry and wanting to eat there. Or like I always try to eat something that like I want to actually eat. You yeah. know, like I I don't try to force it because then it's like a, it becomes like a sport or something, not just yeah. Yeah. What what city or country that you've visited do you feel has some of the best food in the world? So that's funny because I just talked about Japan. Um, definitely Tokyo. Like the food in Tokyo is, I could live there just to eat for like my whole life. I love Japanese food and I love sushi. That's my favorite thing in the world. But I've had the best French food of my life in Tokyo. I've had the best pizza of my life in Tokyo. Like they literally, I think this is just Japan, but like they take anything and they just like make it better. Yeah. And the flavors that are available there for like even the dumbest thing like chips or Kit Kat, they literally have like 200 flavors of fucking Kit Kat. Like they have like butter flavor or, you know, blueberry and this crazy thing. And they just, it's such a food centered, food focused culture that um, everything is, I've never had a bad bite of food there. Wow, so you are pretty daring because I would have never tried a butter Kit Kat. <laughs> yeah, you would have never tried one? Really? No. Do you like butter? I do, and but. Do, but do you like Kit Kat? Yeah, I just feel like butter and chocolate is, a weird combination. Fair. I'm a fatty, <laughs> so to me, like, put butter on anything. I actually have a ring that says butter um, <laughs> that I'm wearing right now. But, yeah, I mean, it was good. It was just, like, it literally tasted like crispy butter, which is, like, probably sounds gross to some people, well, but hey. I think it sounds good. <laughs> if I ever make it to Tokyo, I may try a butter Kit Kat. <laughs> Honestly, the Kit Kat stores there are crazy. Like, it's amazing because in Tokyo, in every mall, they have, like, these really ornate underground food um, food halls. They're called Depachikas. I actually wrote a story about uh, them for Vogue when I was over there once. But basically when you walk into any Depachika, they have all of these food stalls, like you'll see a Kit Kat stall and you know every other candy and like someone baking buns and all this other stuff. And then usually there's like a whole other section where they do like fish and sushi and then there's a whole other meat section and dairy and all this stuff. And it's very overwhelming, but like, <laughs> yeah, it's, You'll hopefully see one of the Kit Kat stands because yeah. they're everywhere. <laughs> so now that we know the food in Japan is extremely awesome, where is somewhere you dream about going to enjoy food and why? Dream about? Um, I've been, I mean, obviously everyone wants to go to Paris to eat. And I think mm -hmm. it's on my mind right now because everyone was just there for Paris Fashion Week or at least like a bunch of people I know were just there and I kept watching their stories. So that would be amazing, but one place I really want to spend more time in, um, and I actually do dream about the food there, is just the South. Like I went to Georgia, I went to Atlanta for the first time last year, and the food there is amazing. Like I felt like I needed to spend a week just like with my juicer when I got home <laughs> after eating like, Everything fried. Yeah, like, <laughs> and it was like the mac and cheese and the Waffle House staying open for 24 hours and the wings and everything, but like, it's so delicious and the level of like hospitality and like just the way that people treat each other there. Yeah. Um, I would love to spend more time there. I think like they have a really interesting food culture and not just in Georgia, like the whole South. It would be amazing to do a road trip yeah. of all of that. So that would be, I that, hopefully this summer actually, that would be really great. So while you were there, did you try anything like, unusual fried I know they have like fried ice cream and really different stuff that mm. you would never hear about being fried and they do it there Facts. so they fry everything <laughs> it was I don't think I tried anything that unusual one thing that really blew me away was like 
in all of the Whole Foods, like I would try to go to Whole Foods sometimes just like get a salad for lunch. And in all the Whole Foods beside the salad bars, they have like giant cast iron skillets filled with mac and cheese and fried chicken and like peach pie and blueberry, uh, like cherry pie and all this stuff. And I just thought that was like a very dangerous but amazing touch that like every Whole Foods just like has a whole spread of like fresh Southern foods ready to go. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was there for, for like a music trip, so I wasn't really focused that much on trying mm -hmm. like any of the crazy stuff but I would love to go back. It's definitely like, I'll never forget, I had an Uber driver down there once and he was very chatty. He started talking about like Southern food and whatever. And he was like this really skinny looking healthy guy. Yeah. And he just starts telling me about how he's had three triple bypass surgeries on his <laughs> heart because like of his diet. Yeah. And he's just like, but I just love fried chicken, man. Like you gotta <laughs> get that crunch. And I was like, fuck, this is the South. Like this is crazy. So Whoa. that's how it is. <laughs> I think he should focus a little bit more on his health, but for hey, sure. he's driving Uber, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he definitely had it together enough for that. <laughs> apparently, he also told me that Georgia has a really great um, like heart clinic. Apparently, it's like some of the best heart surgeons oh, in the world okay. live there, so now you know. Now <laughs> I know. <laughs> I saw on your Instagram that you were lucky enough to be featured as a judge on Iron Chef Canada. Uh, what was that experience like? And... How did that opportunity arise for you to be on the show? Um, it was great. It was an amazing experience. They actually asked me to do it after one of the producers had apparently had been following me on Instagram for a while. I didn't Ooh. know that she had been following me. And I used to be like much more liberal about what I posted. I feel like Instagram used to just be somewhere where people would post like shitty pictures of their lunches. Like it was so <laughs> low key, even a few years ago. So I was always on Instagram like if I was at a restaurant, like talking into the camera, like doing, just doing dumb shit, but not thinking anyone was watching. And so I guess one of the producers had been following me and just DM me saying that they were casting for Iron Chef Canada. And I had to come in and do like a round of auditions. Um, they were actually interested in, they, I auditioned for a bigger role, like one of the floor reporter roles. Mm -hmm. So I guess they wanted to have like more young people involved and like more women and whatever. And didn't get it. Um, they hired someone else, but then they just asked me to come back to be one of the judges. And it was a lot of fun. Honestly, I was really impressed with the whole production. Like, when I watch TV, I usually assume that it happens the way you see it. But, like, for Iron Chef, you know, they maybe take five minutes to do something extra Ooh. or plate or, like, it, there's a little bit of the magic of TV going on. But with this, like, they really st stuck to the script. Like, the chefs literally only had an hour. There was no stopping between filming. It moved so quickly. It was, like, exactly what you saw at home happened in, yeah. the, in like, Kitchen Stadium. There, was no, there were no shortcuts, no nothing. So it was pretty, like, intense. And I can imagine the chefs were under a lot of stress. I was under a lot of stress just, like, <laughs> being in the hot. Yeah, like, being in the hot in kitchen environment and then having to, like, deliver some kind of feedback about the food but it was a it was a great experience for sure did you enjoy the meal that you had to judge oh my god so <laughs> actually there was one that was i think i did we filmed so long ago i did one that was lamb or beef i think it was lamb was the Ooh. ingredient and then the other one of the other ones i did the, the secret ingredient was bivalves which like if you're not familiar that's anything that comes in a shell from the ocean or like has like two valves in it or something so like scallops Ooh oysters, um, something called gooey duck, which is like a Asian delicacy. In China, they'll like uh, slice it really thin and fry it, or in Japan, sometimes you'll have it like in a, like raw in an omakase, like sushi type Ooh, of thing. Yeah. But if you're 
if you're at home right now or like after this interview is over, Google Gooey Duck, like what it looks like. It is the most, I never call food disgusting, but like it is the most like bad looking thing. Like it, it literally looks, I like just Google it, you'll understand. It looks so fucking nasty. And they just had all these like goo like raw gooey ducks <laughs> spread out. And we filmed the episode at um it was like eight in the morning and we just had to eat like all of this crazy shellfish at eight in the morning. And the chefs are going crazy making like gooey duck puree, all this stuff. And there's also like ten cameras on you, like you're sweating, you have like an inch of makeup on your face. <laughs> I was not like I wasn't loving it, but it was it was a, it was a good experience. Yeah, it was definitely like I don't love gooey duck in general, so that was like a high pressure environment to have to eat like <laughs> thirty plates of it. But <laughs> yeah, I I can only imagine. So, your interview article, Toby's Search for Home, published in Now Toronto, was named one of the top forty best Canadian music writing of twenty nineteen. Congratulations on that. And I wanted to ask, were you shocked by this? And do you hope to make the 2020 cut? Um, I actually was kind of shocked because I'm so used to like not getting, like not winning <laughs> things. I feel like for my whole career, not that it's been that long, but for the last eight years or so that I've been writing, I kind of just like keep my head down and like do my work or whatever. But I've never been one of those people who like, you know, has this big viral Twitter moment or whatever, like gains mm -hmm. like a bunch of followers or, you know, gets nominated for like best food writing award or whatever. Never, and nothing like that. Um, so when I saw that, I was just like, especially cause I hadn't, I wasn't familiar that they even did that. Yeah. I was just <laughs> like, my friend actually sent it to me. She's like, congrats, like you were nominated. I was like, the fuck, like, that's <laughs> cool. Um, but I'm really happy because his story, like Toby's story is so interesting. And I don't even know if I did it like I only had 800 words, so obviously I couldn't tell like the whole thing. But mm -hmm. I think that was definitely one of the best stories that I've written about like any sort of music thing in general. So yeah, I, I read it like and it. I was very intrigued by it. Thank um, you. He actually, I actually researched him afterwards because your your writing like it opened me up to his whole story. Like his whole story was just That's nice. <laughs> yeah, he's um his music is really great too. Like he really is super super talented, and I feel like with a lot of Canadian musicians sometimes it can be really hard to break across the border and like become as popular as you would be if you were American and had access to like everything you have access to as an American musician. And I like, he's gotten so much bigger even since that article was published because yeah. his music is just like so good that I hope that like, I feel like 2020, he works so hard. Like I feel like he could be really, really big. Big for like, 2020. Yeah, like he's, his music is as good as any top 40 anything. Like he is so talented mm -hmm. that I can see it like, I can see it really blowing up for him, so I hope so. Back in October of 2019, you attended the All Three Coast Festival in Atlanta. The goal is to network, educate, and inspire the next generations. So how was your experience at the A3C Festival, and was there anything, was there anything in particular that you learned or took away from the conference? Yeah. Um, the experience, first of all, was amazing. It was my first time in Atlanta. It was my first time in the South. Like, it's such a different world down there. Like, the only cities I've really spent any substantial amount of time in in America is like New York and LA, and those are like, I don't even think that's like a really America. <laughs> like, it's not really a good representation of like the whole country at yeah. all. It's like you know, coastal elite or whatever. So, spending time in Atlanta, first of all, was like a huge culture shock. It was so different. Like, just even the way like. People have, like, 
people have different accents and like everything down there you really feel like you're in Atlanta so it was cool just from that perspective like for something different and then with A3C in particular I'm like always down to meet people and network and whatever and it's helped me a lot in my career but I was really blown away by how hungry everyone was like I was lucky because I got a wristband through um, the label that I work with, 300, so they gave me like a little VIP thing and we yeah. had access to like everywhere we wanted to go. Um, but anywhere we went, like whether it was in the VIP area or the regular area, people would just come up to you and like introduce themselves, ask you what you did, like just look how you can link and, not I literally just said link and build, <laughs> but like how you can work together. And I made a lot of really great connections from that. I also had a lot of, a, a few awkward moments where people were just like, just go up to him and introduce yourself, blah, blah, blah. Because there's a lot of really he big heavy hitters that yeah. like come down for A3C. Like, I mean, Two Chains from Atlanta, like T.I. was there giving a talk, like Karen Civil, Lenny Lenz, like Lenny S. It was um, a lot of like the biggest heavy hitters in music mm -hmm. were all down there. And they're all just like on the ground level talking to everyone. And I remember with Lenny, he was standing beside me and like, to me, like, he like helps run Rock Nation. He's like a legendary photographer. He's done so much. Like that's like a legend in my mind. And yeah. he's like standing beside me. And my friends were like, I was like, it's so crazy. Like he's standing beside me, like whispering. And my friends were like, introduce yourself. Like, are you done? Like, go introduce yourself. And I was like, no, I can't do it. And this was at the end of the day. Like we had been out all day, like talking to people, going to different talks and stuff. I was so tired and I was like, I don't want to do it. And they were like, go introduce yourself. Like, we're not leaving until you do it. So I introduced myself and it was so awkward. And I, I can tell in his eyes, he was just like, what are you doing? Like, he was just thinking like, who is this bitch? And so it was super awkward and I just like left after that. But for the most part, how hungry people were and how open they were to just like connect with you and, mm. and talk to you was like very inspiring. And I think we need more of that like across the board. So it was super cool. I'm, I'm definitely going back next year hopefully as a speaker. And yeah. I would recommend like anyone who's in, in the music industry, in hip hop specifically, like it's a it's a really great place to be. Yeah. For sure. It was it was my first time hearing about it, but mm. I I read like the whole about section on the website mm. and it seemed like it would it would be very like inspiring and something good for the next generation as they say to attend. For sure. So for sure. Anyone who's trying to get somewhere in the music industry you should definitely go to the a3c for sure no it's and it's mostly hip-hop like if you're in country music or something like, <laughs> that's not the place for you yeah um but it's it was also like it's interesting because now so many more people have heard about it but it only started a few years ago and i was talking to the founders and like it started as like a one room conference in like a hotel room mm -hmm. that they would rent out like a conference room in a hotel and now it's grown this past year it was in like this giant convention hall and they had all these other conference rooms rented out. It was like a multi-story situation. And only a few years ago, it was like literally in one room. Wow. So it's crazy. <laughs> so not only do you write about food, but you're also heavily involved within Canada's music scene. What sparked your interest in hip hop and how does writing about hip hop differ from writing about food? Um, what sparked my interest? I've always, it's always like the music that I grew up listening to. I was like raised listening to like Eminem and then like 50 Cent and then uh, who, I don't know, the mid 2000s, like Fergie or like all, like that's <laughs> like Lil Wayne, like that's, that's what I grew up with. Um, I just never thought that I, like, I grew up in Vancouver. My mom was like, I don't know, wanted me to just get like a stable job. There were not really rappers in Vancouver. Like it wasn't really, we grew up listening to it, 
but I never saw hip hop as like something that there was a space for me in that space or in that industry in any way. And I also am like very conscious, I feel, of like how I look, like trying to be in this hip hop world. Like, I don't know, I don't want to be this like white girl who's just <laughs> like, I work in hip hop, like I manage rappers. It's like, I can see how that would come across in the wrong way. And like, I see people, like, I, I don't know, I see other people doing that. And I just like, I roll my eyes so I can see how people would like roll their eyes yeah. at me. Um, so I just never saw it as like something that was for me to really work in. But then it got to a point a few a couple of years ago where like all of my friends in Toronto were artists or working in the industry or like I felt like I, I knew so many people that like wanted to have more of their stories told and like wanted to, you know, be on Double XL or be in Now Magazine or whatever. And I was in this place where I was like, I'm a writer this is like what I love, this is what I've always loved, and like these are my friends, and these are people I know who like I can help put them on. So I just kind of like crossed, like connected everything and started writing for XXL and Now and all of that stuff. And, and in the early days, like people would pitch me on stories about like country artists or whatever, but like I've never listened to that. It's yeah. not what I know, it's not what I love. So I always just like, I just try to write about stuff that I like, so then that's how I honed in on it. And I was actually really like surprised and really happy with like the reception of it. Yeah. Like as soon as I wrote my first story for Double XL about like Toronto rappers to know, I was so nervous when that piece came out because like I was so new and I knew people were gonna get mad because I like forgot about this person or yeah. that person and then they were gonna find out who I was and they're gonna be like, oh, this like white girl talked like why is she the one who gets to put these like rappers on <laughs> for Double XL, blah blah blah. That's the narrative I had created in my mind. I was like, fuck, people are gonna be so mad at me. But then when it came out, like everyone was so happy and like. The reception was so positive for the most part that like now I write for XXL regularly and I've actually started working with a handful of those artists that I initially wrote about. Um, so I guess like because people seem to accept it and like things seem to be going well, I just like continued pursuing it yeah. more. But I was really hesitant about it for a long time and I put it off for a long time until yeah, but I forgot the other part of your question. <laughs> <laughs> I feel it doesn't matter. You pretty much okay. answered it. I feel like in this day and age, like, it's really hard to please people. Like, mm -hmm. even on social media, period, or just being in the writing career, like, writing about music and all of that, like, people are always going to have their own opinions, and nobody's ever happy. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And at the end of the day, like, you have to do... For me, like, I would rather be in this space and, like, be working with artists and, and writing about the music I love because, like, that's genuinely what I love to do versus, like, trying to get a nine-to-five somewhere. And maybe, like, I would maybe make a little bit more money. I don't even know if I would. But, like, you're not really, truly, like, satisfied or fulfilled or yeah. anything. So as long as you're not, like, being a – like, be respectful and know your place, but, like, you have to do what – you love to do I think at the yeah. end of the day so yeah and what do. it is <laughs> so I wanted to transition and talk about your role as an artist manager starting as a writer what made you want to become an artist manager um so I never actually like it was never something in my mind that I thought about doing yeah again I had a friend um shout out Jonathan Raksha who makes amazing jewelry, but last year when I was doing more of the writing stuff um, and like really immersive, like really kind of being like, fuck everything else, like I'm just writing about hip hop, whatever, people can like hate me for it, like <laughs> this, is, this is what I'm gonna do. Um, when I was really like 
focused on on the on the music stuff, he was just like, Claudia, like this is cool, but like you should manage artists. Like I can see you doing that. Mm -hmm. That's like would make a lot of sense. And I never really thought much of it, but the idea of wanting to be on the other side of the industry became very appealing. Like as a writer, you get access to a lot of artists and like mm -hmm. you can, you know, interview like some fancy people or it can seem like you're really on the inside because you get to publish something that's like Juice World's best this or that or whatever. And it can seem like you're an insider, but for the people who are actually on, in the, on the inside of the industry, like as a writer, they keep you at arm's length. Like you only get to see the artists when they're, you know, media trained and ready to go and whatever. Yeah. Like you don't really know what's going on at all. And I just wanted to be on the other side of it. Like I knew both financially, like the music industry, hip hop right now, like it's the world's most popular music genre. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of money to be made. Like Definitely. literally like labels are giving deals out like it's it's amazing right now and so that was exciting and also like I just wanted to be on the inside more like as a yeah. writer as a journalist unless you're really good at your job and people can forget that you're a journalist they're never going to let you in fully because they don't trust you they don't mm -hmm. want like whatever a story exposed or they, something. they don't want everything exposed and often like for good reason like there's you know they want to like control the image they want yeah, they want their artists to be successful. Like, I get it, especially now managing artists. Like, I get not wanting people to see everything. Like, you don't want people to see you sweat. You don't want, like, people to see the downfalls. But the idea of being on the other side of it was very appealing to me. But um, it's a more interesting story, kind of, of how I started managing artists because it was an opportunity that was presented to me. I never, like, was like, I'm doing this now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was living in New York this summer and doing more of the music writing stuff and just like trying to network, going out to different events, whatever. Um, I was at this bar, which is like a very infamous bar in New York, I think, called Lost Lap. It's like an industry bar. Any given night when you go there, I've seen so many famous people there, but I don't want to seem like some crazy cloud chaser to list all <laughs> of them, but it's a good spot to go for the most part if you're in the music industry, if you're in hip hop, like everyone knows Lost Lap. They talk about it on the Joe Bun podcast all the time. Anyways, I was there one night with a couple of friends, and I met this guy who um, used to work at 300 and now works at a different label. And we got to talking, and he realized that like he knew who I was because I had written about some of the artists that he manages and has worked with yeah. in the past. And so we just got to talking, and he like told me about how he's like had been working with New, which is the, one of the artists that I manage, um, and that like they needed help, and that they were looking for someone who like knew Toronto and was from Toronto, but also, you know, was spending more time in LA and New York and like saw things globally and was like able to travel yeah. versus just staying in Toronto. So um, I had already known New and we had connected in the past, but he was the guy who really like put everything together and introduced me to the label people and whatever and gave me the opportunity. So I'm very grateful for that. I don't even want to name him because I feel like he's super low key, but he like opened the door for me and was like, you should do this. Like, I think it'll yeah. work. So I'm grateful for that. Well, that transitioned perfectly into my next question. It was uh, an up-and-coming up artist that you are managing right now, New. How have you seen him grow as an artist over time that you've been working with him? Um, <clears throat> sorry, how have I seen him grow? I don't know, I don't wanna put words in his mouth, but I think I will say that we've all become more business-minded with mm -hmm. it. Like, I think as an artist, 
when you're just coming up, like obviously you want to get placements on this Spotify playlist or whatever, but you're also operating as a business and at the end of the day we're doing this because like we love it, but like we need to make money. And yeah. I think it's very smart. And everyone who's like been a lot of artists who have been very successful, like Rick Ross or I don't know, like <laughs> like Nipsey Hussle, I don't know if people are gonna think it's corny to even mention him like that, but you're operating like as a business. It's like all money in, own your masters, like start your own business, you know, think about how you can expand. Like you're really an entrepreneur and I see that clicking with new and I see that clicking with myself too, where like you're always thinking like, okay, where can I invest this? Like how can we move in a smart way so that like yeah. we're maximizing kind of our return on this. So yeah, I'm just trying to operate it as a business. I think he is too. Okay. <laughs> so are there any new projects coming soon that we should look out for from you? New projects, yeah. So we're dropping um, Dark Love, which is the long-awaited project that he keeps teasing. If you follow him on his Instagram, he keeps teasing, like, he has, we have this one track with Trippy Red that I'm really excited about. He's actually um, opening for Trippy in LA in a couple months. Uh, so that's dropping eventually, but we have a couple singles we're dropping before that, um, one in February and then one in March, the one that we have in February. Some heat, I'm excited about <laughs> it. Um, yeah, we're shooting a video for it soon. And yeah, we're gonna be like, I think we've geared up right now to like just hopefully explode. Like yeah. everything is kind of behind us right now. We've been in the studio so much and like making all these connections that we're at a place right now where like all the gears are ready to go and we're ready to just like get out there now pedal to the so metal like let's yeah fingers crossed for 2020 for sure i, I mean, mean it's i it's <laughs> happening it has to happen like we have everything in on this now so we're gonna be putting a lot of music out so just like people keep your ears up all the cameras i don't know what <laughs> to look at but um yeah it's it's got to happen we'll yeah. definitely keep our ears open is there anything particular about the role of an artist manager that you found to be challenging? Um, to be challenging, I mean, every job comes with its own challenges. I was given very good advice by someone when I first started in this line of work where, how do they put it? Basically, being an artist manager is like, it's a glorified service industry job. Like, mm -hmm. you are there to be of service to someone else. It's like being a bartender or a server, or whatever, like, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter like what bullshit you're dealing with. You are it all kind of like, you're the sponge to absorb all of it. You know, yeah. like you're the mediator between the back of house, like the kitchen, which would kind of be the label, and the audience and the fans, which is like the diners. Um, so I kind of just look at it like that. I try not to take anything personally. It's like, it's never personal. Like, it's a service industry job. Like, it just sounds cooler. And like, maybe you can make more money, but it's not like, I don't know. That's just how I how I see it. And not to say that like it's so hard and you're this punching bag. It's actually <laughs> like it's an amazing job and yeah. it's like you meet a lot of great people and I've been so fortunate cuz new assigned to 300 that like I've been lucky to be in meetings with like some really big people like at 300 yeah. and at all of these labels um you just got to like keep your head down and remember like you're not the star like you are it's a service industry <laughs> job. That's yeah. That's yeah. where I can put it. But you're you're definitely part of why the star gets to some points that they get to. For, for sure. sure, for sure. I think like I can see Yeah, I mean with anything when you believe in it, like you put your all into it mm -hmm. and Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I can see like 
there's just so many emotions that are involved with something where like you're working overtime, like you're always in the studio, whatever, that I don't even know what I'm trying to say, but it's just important to, I don't even, I don't even know. <laughs> it's being an artist manager is crazy. <laughs> but it's amazing. Like I, yeah, it's really cool to see, like to, I remember when we, when we dropped our first single Dreamcast as like me helping to manage new. And it's just like cool to see something from, you know, the beginning when no one had, like, no one had heard Dreamcast yet. There was no video, nothing to like putting it out into the world. And yeah, it's kind of the same feeling as like writing a story and seeing it being put out into the world. It's like there's like a feeling of satisfaction that comes. Yeah, with it. you get to see it blossom from, it's like, yeah, something growing from nothing to totally. being something big. And that's why like I'm really excited to really get much bigger this year because. It's cool to see like something, you know, go from zero to five hundred thousand streams or whatever. But like, to go from five hundred thousand to like five million or fifty million mm -hmm. or whatever, like that's where I'm thinking. Yeah. Now and I think that would be even more exciting. So as you were just saying, the music industry is very male dominant, and many say it still has a long way to go for gender equality. Now, you being a female in the industry, have you ever felt like you had to? sell yourself or work harder than what a male would have to do? Um, I've never obviously been a dude, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know how it goes for them. I know yeah. I've been in certain rooms where people haven't taken me seriously or like I'll even, it's, it'll be someone that I've had to speak to like in a professional manner, whether mm -hmm. it's like over emails or we've met like a handful of times and like they won't even remember my name. They'll literally just call me like the girl to like I'll see it in the email thread or whatever <laughs> and it's pretty discouraging when you see stuff like that because you're like hey like I'm here I work hard like I'm a person yeah like <laughs> remember my name like it's not really asking that much um so there's definitely like that happens and that's real I know I have like a lot to prove in that sense but at the same time like it's hard for everyone to break into this industry. Like, I don't think it's just a male or a female thing at all. Like, everyone has to work hard. So I don't mind, like, every, yeah. Most people have a lot to prove. Like, you have to do the work. It's fine. Yeah. So, yeah. It's I, And again, I think going back to not taking stuff personally as a manager, you really, like, I really live by that now. Because yeah. it really usually is never personal. It's either, like, just a reflection of where someone else is at or their ego or whatever and... It's like really, if you want to like be able to get through your day, like you need to, I need to remember that all yeah. the time. So I kind of live by that. Sometimes, I mean, maybe sometimes you need to know when you should take something personally. But for the most part, just keep it moving. Like yeah. do the work and it'll be fine. It'll, it'll blow away. Eventually. For sure. And then like the next day, some other shit hits the fan and the other stuff seems like nothing. <laughs> or something great happens and you totally forget. So. Every day is like a different a different struggle. Yeah. With the new year just starting, many people tend to start a new year hoping to do something differently than the previous year. What is your 2020 vision for your career? Jeez. Um, I'm working on so much shit right now that I don't even know where <laughs> to start. One of the things I'm really excited about is I'm working with Six Buzz and Six Foods and we're producing some original content with um, artists, mostly rappers from Toronto and like a crossover of food stuff, like we're gonna be cooking together and stuff like that. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that. But my main biggest goal is I wanna be doing more A&R work. Like I have other artists that I'm working with right now. Um, it's not as like official as the new stuff. I w 
I want to be in a role where I can either help sign those artists or just giving people more opportunities. Like I think to really be a boss, you're not just giving yourself opportunities, like you're helping to put other people on, Yeah. you know? And I wanna be in a position where I can do that. So it would be amazing to be hired as an A&R by a label, like, and then I can still continue doing the management stuff on the side, mm. but I feel like I have a good ear. And that's in the back of my mind, like it sounds crazy to say, I don't even, it shouldn't sound crazy to say, but like if any labels are watching, <laughs> please hire me. But yeah, that would be that would be very sick. Um, eventually, like I want to be one of the biggest executives in music. Like yeah. that's like I I want to keep writing. I will always write, but that's like my real like end of the line yeah. type of thing. Like so, yeah, that's the goal. So nearing the end of our interview, I wanted to ask you a few rapid fire questions. Right. So the first one, I think I already have this answer. Your favorite food. Sushi, oh, sushi, right? for sure. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Pineapple Fanta. <laughs> it's good, though. Favorite country you've traveled to? Uh, Japan. Cats or dogs? Dogs. I hate cats. <laughs> the Box by Rudy Rich or Yummy by Justin Bieber? Roddy. Um, <laughs> Roddy Rich. I Definitely The Box. I think Yummy was... I don't know what happened. It was annoying. <laughs> I'm not a big fan, but it's okay. <laughs> and last question, Nike or Adidas? Nike, for sure. Okay. Checks over stripes, baby. <laughs> well, yeah. thank you guys so much for listening or watching this episode. And I want to thank Claudia so much for coming in and speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate no it. No problem. And hope to see you guys soon.